0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've started a series through this book, and there's kind of a slow burn at the start, and that's intentional. We need to kind of set some context and get a grounding, because if we can slow down and understand some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff happening, it will make our journey through the book a lot more meaningful, a lot more relevant. So two weeks ago, I just introduced the book and the context. We just looked at the first three verses, and we really discovered there the writer and the audience, and the, the purpose of the book. And I've got it highlighted if you have the sermon notes. Uh, it's written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to the church in Corinth. Paul established the church in Corinth in about 50 AD, about uh, 17 years after Jesus was resurrected. He then writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus during his third missionary journey in 55 uh, AD. So there's been about five years between establishing the church and then writing. This is probably the second letter, but there's a series of correspondences. And he's writing to this church to call them back to who they are in Christ. He says, God has begun to work in you. You have been sanctified. And that's a word in some of your translations that will say, be made holy. You've been set apart for God's purposes. And the rest of the letter, he's going to say, I want you to live into that identity. I want you to remember who you are. You now have a new purpose a new identity. You're called to be holy. Um, Corinth was a really wealthy and cosmopolitan city in ancient Greece. Uh, Can we just go to the map for a sec? Um, Yeah, right there. Just because of where it was and located on an isthmus, which allowed it to have two ports, and it was a center for uh, all kinds of uh, commercial... Well, it kind of prospered because of its locality. It even though we might think of Athens as sort of a more significant uh, Greek city in some ways. um, Corinth, uh, having been taken over by Rome about a hundred years before this letter, so 46 uh, BC, it had grown and been rebuilt as a Roman colony and was now a center for uh, the religion. Um, Paul talks about idolatry, but what they would have thought is just civic religion to a bunch of gods, it was a center for commerce. It was a center for education. We'll talk about that in a moment. And for entertainment, the Isthmian games were second only to the Olympic games in terms of prominence. They were held every two years. So Corinth had had this really quick growth from being leveled by Rome to rebuilt over a hundred years into one of the most prominent cities in the Roman empire. Paul goes there on a second missionary journey, spends a year and a half, which is unusual for Paul to spend that much time in a locality and then he's writing because he's gotten correspondence from people in the church saying things are not good there's a lot of issues there's a lot of troubles we need your guidance we need your help because remember they don't have a collected bible like we have they are learning in real time how to follow jesus and they're having to fill in a lot of blanks they don't have a model for how to be the church this is completely new and I want, to talk about a bit, I want to talk a little bit about some of those values that inform them because they're very at odds with how we experience life in the West today. So one of the things that you need to know in terms of the background, the operating system running in the background of Corinth, the, the culture that people just thought this is, the way, this, this is just the way things are was that in a Roman world, you had a very fierce and um, (laughs) clearly defined social hierarchy and class system. Uh, The ancient Roman Empire had a complex social hierarchy with a really rigid class system that determined a person's status. And the wealthy landowners and politicians were at the top very few of them. And then many more were at the bottom. You had the patricians who were the highest class in Rome, often called the elites. You had the equestrians, which were sort of like wealthy businessmen who could influence things because of their money. We might call them upper middle class. And then you had the plebeians who were working class, lower working class, right along the poverty line. Freedmen who used to be slaves, who were now granted their freedom, and then slaves. And those three lower levels occupied the vast majority of the population of ancient Rome and Corinth. Slavery seen as something natural, befitting, necessary for a society. A lot of Roman philosophers, Greek philosophers said, this is the way the God is. gods have ordered the world. You, you need to have slaves. There are people who are made to occupy menial labor. And so that the agendas of the elite... Uh, Those at the top of the social uh, hierarchy can advance the purposes to which the gods have set them in place for. That hierarchy wasn't always strict. There was sometimes movement uh, up or down. But in general, that was rare. people who were born into a certain um, um, strata kind of stayed there their whole life. The second thing it's important to know about the culture of Rome is that it had very clearly defined gender roles. Uh, Ancient Corinth was, uh, gender roles in ancient Corinth were highly defined, very limited. Men basically hold almost all the positions of power and influence in society economically and politically. Women were expected to be homemakers and childbearers, often not afforded any kind of an education. It was seen as wasted and squandered on a woman. Their opportunities for education and obviously therefore employment were severely limited. Family was highly valued in ancient Corinth. It was seen as the fundamental social unit of the entire city. The father or their patra familia was seen as the head of the household. And that head was there to enforce the order of Rome in a microcosm in the family. And so there were these expectations that a family was run with a not so subtly militaristic edge to it, a command and obey structure. And again, Roman philosophers and Greek philosophers before them talked about how this was absolutely necessary for the building and strengthening of an empire, for the good of all those who live in Rome. And again, I'm, I'm talking about things that these Christians in Corinth would have grown up just presuming is the natural way that life is supposed to go. We have very little evidence that there's many Jewish converts to Christianity in Corinth. It's mostly people who have grown up in this Roman pagan uh, culture. Ancient Corinth was polytheistic, many gods, many temples. Temples were um, fused with everyday life in a way that we would probably feel very uncomfortable with. We, We tend to think of religion as a bit more of a private matter or something that we do in enclaves. But at this time, civic religion was out in the open. It was part of how you bought and sold and who you did business with and why. Uh, These religious commitments played a significant role in daily life. And lastly, entertainment. Ancient Corinth was known as a place of tremendous entertainment. We talked about the Odeon Theater uh, two weeks ago. But the forms of entertainment that would have been normalized for people in Corinth were often incredibly violent and really, really brutal, often taking advantage of slaves, uh, throwing them to the proverbial meat grinder in order for uh, the masses to be entertained. So that sort of obviously imbues society with a very low view of the value of human life, but especially a low view and the disposability of human life for those who are at the bottom of that social hierarchy. Paul is writing this letter to people for whom all of these things had been normal, to whom all of these things would have been seen as like good. And now that they've come to know Jesus, they are starting to realize there's tension points between how they've grown up the values that the culture says this is what we should lift up and the values of the kingdom of God and what Caesar, the Lord over the Roman Empire, calls them to versus what Jesus calls them to. Pete Cesaro, um, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he has this great line where he says, how come some Christians, they come to faith, they're sincerely committed to Jesus, but you can fast forward five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, 50 years, And some of those Christians are some of the most emotionally immature, stunted people you'll ever meet. And he says, it's because of this. You can have Jesus in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Meaning we're all born into a massive momentum of cultural currents that we can be blind to And if we don't become attentive to those things and learn to yield them to Jesus and surrender them to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal us from those things, to save us, to help us, we can stay stuck in those patterns. And Paul is writing to a church who genuinely has Jesus in their hearts, but they have Corinth in their bones. There are just things about life that seems natural to them. And so God has a lot of work to do in this community, freeing them from the sinful ways of seeing themselves, God, life, um, freeing them from being and living in the world in a way that seems natural to them, that is actually incredibly destructive among themselves out into the world. And God has a lot of work to do with this community in establishing His priorities and His values. So last week, we talked about this big mess that's in Corinth. Right? We listed these issues. If we go to the next slide, these are some of the issues out of order that the Corinthians are dealing with. And we kind of had that thought of, okay, when the mess is this big, he's got this whole letter addressing all of these. When the mess is this big, where do you start? We had some good conversation around that. I want to pause for a moment. And what I want you to consider just to pull us into the real ground level is I want you to look at this list and I want you to consider the question, what do you think it would have felt like to be in a church characterized by these things? What does it feel like to be a part of a church that's gathering on Sundays and throughout the week and trying to follow Jesus, but at the same time, there are these uh, massive, chaotic um, dysfunctional, destructive patterns happening? What would be words that you can imagine some of those Corinthians are feeling as they just try and inhabit the culture of their church? Schizophrenic, yeah, this sense of like, what, wait, what's going on? I thought we were all on the same page and then someone does X when you thought they were gonna do Y and now you're like, wait, I'm really confused. Um, Maybe there's a sense of like, do we even know who we are? Because some people seem to be operating in ways that are wildly destructive and not even accidentally, like on purpose. What are the other words that might come up that you'd imagine? Hopeless. Yeah, for sure. This is five years later, right? That, I mean, obviously it didn't, but what do you think the apostle Paul hears getting this correspondence from Chloe saying, we could use your help. We have some issues. Here they are. Could you address those? Right? Not like, hey, awesome update video from the appeals. This is happening. Awesome kingdom of God's breaking out. Some hard stuff. Lots of amazing stuff. Uh, Paul, it's basically falling apart. So could you just kind of like help us out here? Right? Imagine how Paul felt. This community that he stayed in, invested so much time in. And five years later, this is the fruit Like, oof, any other words emotionally of what it might feel like to be in a church characterized by these things? Frustration. How about just like plain awkward? Like, you know, we, we would use the language today like psychologically or spiritually unsafe. Like maybe you never know what you're gonna get with people. Maybe there's just so much tension and awkwardness that it's hard to show up and even build relationships because you're clearly not on the same page on so many levels. This is what some might call a messy church. There's books that are written called like messy church. And there's even sermon series on Corinthians called like messy church. Do you think it's a good idea to frame a church as messy? What do you think? Okay, so part of it is if it's an acknowledgement that we don't have everything together and that you know if you look beyond the veneer of what might appear on Sunday morning, we've all got places that we need to work on, where we need to grow, where we need to mature, then framing things as, yeah, we're kind of like a messy church. That can actually be a signaler of some humility, right? That we're not posturing and saying like, well, we've got to act together and we're super Christians. Can you think of a way that, framing a church as messy though could go in the other direction and actually be really dysfunctional or unhealthy. Ray. But <laughs> <laughs> I've been a pastor for a long time, Ray. I'm good on my feet. I have no idea how to link. Oh, are you keep going? I think I might actually Keep going. What do you mean by that? Jerry Springer was the comment. Okay. So if messy means, yeah, we acknowledge this is what's happening in our church. What are you going to do? We're a messy church. Right? If messy, if honesty actually is about um, recognizing our disobedience and our unfaithfulness to Jesus, and then just seeking to have that validated, then it becomes something really unhealthy. And so this is a church where Paul is saying, I'm sure on one level, I'm thankful that someone was honest enough to expose this stuff, but this actually isn't okay. We've got to do something about it. And so he begins in verse four. We talked about this last week. He gives thanks for them. He starts with thankfulness and he just keeps hammering again and again, nine times in the first nine verses, he comes back to Jesus again and again and again, grounding the Corinthians. And this is what your faith is about. This is what you need to be focusing on. There's lots of places that we need to start. But I thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Because in him, you've been enriched in every way and all your speaking and knowledge because of our testimony about Christ, it was confirmed in you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement of faith by Paul. Imagine knowing the kind of church that you're writing to and saying, he's going to keep you strong to the end. I'm not hopeless. I'm not giving up on you. I know that when Jesus returns, you're going to be blameless. That's amazing. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord is faithful. He says, that's part of the key of your calling. It's not just to try and pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and be a better person. It's to first say, I want to enter into a relationship with Jesus and allow his love to transform me and move out from there. And so throughout these nine verses, Paul is pulling them back into Jesus. And he's finding all kinds of ways to reinforce that when you've got to mess that big, you've got to start with Jesus. You've got to start with Jesus and then allow God through his word and spirit in the community to begin organizing and putting into place the stuff that's disjointed, unaligned, destructive, sinful. Today we come to the first of that long list of issues that Paul needs to address. In verse 10 he says, "I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another, so that there's no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought." My brothers, some of from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And this is what I mean. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas. And Cephas was the Aramaic Aramaic, um, name for Peter. So it's referring to the apostle Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. And then Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And he says, I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus. Um, and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. I mean, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I actually don't remember if I baptized anyone else, because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's a particular cultural dynamic that we haven't spoken to yet that's at play here that I think we need to become sensitized to, to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here and helping us to get a fuller picture of what he's addressing in these verses. So I want to play this short clip. And as you watch it, just be mindful to think, how does what we're learning in this clip inform what Paul
1: just challenged the Corinthians with? Being a Roman colony with so much prestige, Corinth became a particularly attractive place for Roman citizens and veterans to settle. It was especially attractive for those citizens who belonged to the elite upper class. This brought a strong Roman character to this Greek city. Those who were born into one of these elite families enjoyed special rights and privileges that others did not. Their wealth and status gave them favor with other elites, and with people who held power. They lived lives of prosperity, privilege, prestige, and preferential treatment. Not surprisingly, they were often the recipients of exclusive invitations to special feasts associated with the Isthmian Games and other religious festivals hosted by one of the many temples scattered throughout the city. These events attracted high-ranking elites from all over Greece, providing opportunities that could lead to great personal benefit, financial or political. Food, wine, and pleasures of the flesh flowed freely at these events. In this city, status was everything. It mattered a great deal what others thought. The clothes they wore and the social circles that they were associated with played an important role in establishing their status before others within their community. Another indicator of status was education. They sought to closely associate themselves with certain public educators called sophists, which literally means wise ones. These Sophists were articulate speakers and masters of rhetoric, the art of persuasion. The greatest Sophists were well-respected and gained large public followings. With their high social status, they felt that manual labor was beneath them. Instead, they made good money charging people to come and listen to them deliver eloquent speeches or to debate other Sophists. Disciples of a particular sophist would pledge their loyalty to their master, banding together to form a camp of faithful followers. They sought to become a reflection of their teacher like in a mirror, both in the way he behaved and in the way he spoke. Meanwhile, they distanced themselves from those whose loyalty lay with rival sophists. Many of the elites believed that keeping company with a great sophist was a badge of their high social status. They were willing to pay handsomely to become a disciple of a renowned sophist, and those who could afford it might even pay for their sons to learn under their tutelage.
0: <clears throat> how does that video change how you read verses 10 to 17? What, what does it help to bring out, or maybe a dynamic that... Um, might not be there. What's happening in verses 10 to 17? Ray. Yeah. Yeah, that's their template. They're like, oh, I get it. Christianity is like, um, it's like what we do when you uphold certain people and you devote yourself to them and you set yourself against competing uh, wise philosophers and so within this church, they're like, well, I follow Paul. Who do you follow? Oh, I follow Paul. And there's factionalism. There's divisions. But what's important to understand is under what's driving it, though. What's drive like, why are they doing it? And the answer is because they want status. They want to be seen as important. They think, oh, what God is doing in our lives is... Um, lifting us up in a way that now we're superior to other people. And even within the church, it was like, well, there's certain levels of Christians. And they're taking this hierarchy and they're kind of mushing it all together. But it's coming from this place of, oh, like if I invoke the name of Paul or Peter or even Jesus, I'm trying to gain status. I'm leveraging it in a way that someone involved in a personality cult would. And a baptism becomes a way to say, see, like I was baptized in in, in Paul's name. So there's this deep groove of prideful self-interest that is an undercurrent, that is just in their bones. And they've kind of taken some of the truths of Christianity and just sort of mapped it onto it. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. What we're going to see in the weeks ahead is he says, Christianity is not a baptism of the Corinthian culture. It's a baptism into a new kind of life. And actually one where your status, your greatness, your prominence is actually correlated to your willingness to serve and go low. And to be seen as nothing. To be seen as a slave to Jesus. And so what Paul's going to do over these next, uh, really, probably four chapters specifically, he's just going to drive home this message. That greatness in Corinth to ascend the, to the top, you know what that feels like, but that is not the way God operates. That is not the way you attain greatness in the kingdom of God. And he's going to start with the cross as a way of reinforcing that the kingdom of God is often a reversal of the values that these early Christians... Just took for granted. Really, really powerful. Really interesting. Don't want to steal too much thunder from our speaker next week. Because Rick and I are away at the ECC AGM. And Josh Evans is going to be speaking. uh, Partly on this passage. Uh, Josh was born and raised in Nelson. Uh, He's attended our Covenant uh, Youth Group. He's just completed his second year at Clearwater College of Biblical Studies in Caroline, Alberta. He's planning to finish with a Bachelor of Theology Um, Rick has been a significant influence in his life and theological formation. And uh, I'm really excited um, that he's gonna be speaking next week. And I hope that uh, you will be out in full support and encouraging him. It's amazing when any young person uh, takes the leap and says, I want to begin honing maybe these gifts that God has given me. And he's gonna be speaking to some of the broader themes here of Christian unity. But for today, let me close just with this, to recognize that Paul is setting up what are gonna be experienced by the Corinthian church as a number of haymakers. That he wants there to be unity and that unity isn't going to be found if you're trying to climb over each other and trying to make a name for yourself and promote yourself to use faith or the fact that you're, you were planted by Paul or taught by Apollos as a source of status, you belong to Jesus. But that means a radical humbling. And your baptism, is not a symbol of your greatness, but your death. And then rising up to a new kind of life where Jesus is your king. And life is about raising his status and not your status. And then Paul will move through all of these issues, finances, sexuality, lawsuits, confusion over future resurrection. But he's going to do it through this idea that God's values are inverting what, the, what felt natural to the Corinthians. Um, homework for this week if you want just a little note Romans chapter 6 the book of Romans written by Paul to the church in Rome at a later visit when he was in Corinth and from Corinth he writes to Rome Romans chapter 6 read the whole chapter it's a teaching on baptism and what it means and it's a good little spiritual gut check to hold it in tension with what he's talking about here So the challenge for us, and I'll just leave this and let it sit, let it simmer, maybe let God through his spirit and his word do an uncomfortable work. Jesus may be in our heart, but the Kootenays are in our bones, right? Jesus is in our heart. It's real, real honest faith, but there are things that just come very naturally to us. And maybe it's not the Kootenays, maybe it's where you were from, GTA or the coast or somewhere in America. Am I willing to this week, honestly, go before God and say, can you show me the ways that I'm living that are really out of sorts, disjointed, dislocated, out of alignment with what you would have for me, God? I'm not even going to put a limiter on it. Like any area of my life, will you just bring forward? If there's a wayward, crooked way within me, a way that I've been justifying or a way that I've been blind to because we are, but fish discover water last. And the Corinthians had to be taught to see these things because they were like, well, isn't this just the way the world works? And Paul says, no, God is upending that. Would we have the courage to do that ourselves? I'll lead us in that. I will do that myself. And with faith and grace, I pray that you'll join me. Let's pray. God, there's all kinds of ways in which The cultures, the family cultures, the church cultures, the broader societal cultures just impress values in on us. They get those values through social media or entertainment and we can grow up and just think, yeah, this is just good. This is great. And we just baptize those things or we just add a Christian spin to them. Instead of asking you, God, is this something that we can even participate in at all? Or what does it look like? to confront these things in your power and in your grace. This is hard work, God. It takes the Corinthians uh, many chapters and many years to work it out. But would we have the courage, would I have the courage this week to ask you and would um, we be able to receive it and to be willing to respond in faith? We want you to be our King. We want to honour and bless you with our lives. Take the messiness that is there and begin to redeem and reform it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask Rick to come up and just kind of introduce the...